We're going to read now from Revelation 13, and we're going to think about it together uh, just now. So you might want to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 13, and um, we'll maybe keep, keep your finger in it because we'll be looking at it uh, fairly closely. So if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 1242, right at the back, 1242. Uh, we've uh, broken into one of John's visions in which he sees a, a dragon, a woman, a child. And now we see uh, the dragon handing over, as it were, the focus from the dragon moving to two beasts that emerge from the sea and from the land. That's what this chapter contains. So verse 1 of chapter 13, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head he had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all of the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and his inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had a mark which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for it is man's number. His number is 666. Amen. Well, do keep that open because we want to try 
and look at this together. It's been quite a week in politics, I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, the, the days ahead are likely to be equally uh, interesting or challenging. Maybe, like many, you are frustrated about what is going on, depending on what side of the debate you're on. You're either incredibly frustrated about the happenings in Downing Street or the happenings in Parliament. And, and uh, and yet, no matter what has happened this week, it did, the thought did occur to me that no matter how bad it has been or will be, it's a great deal better than what many, many other people in the world are living with, or indeed have lived with. We have a degree of freedom of speech. We have opportunity, perhaps at some stage, to vote uh, for those who lead our country or to vote out those who lead our country. Reminds me of uh, Churchill's famous statement. It has been said that democracy, he said, is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. And, and, and this difficult experience with government is something that God's people, down through the years, have really experienced, and, and do so in various places today. Often Christians have found themselves oppressed, not just by their neighbors, but by the state, by those who make the laws and, and rule the country. The very first Christians, for example, they, they faced some difficulties with their local Jewish neighbors and then from Jewish authorities, but it was not long before the, the might of the Roman Empire was really rallied against them. You, you can go to the Colosseum today, for example, in Rome and, and stand where many Christians lost their lives. And in fact, if you, if you stand uh, at the Vatican in St. Peter's Square, you're really standing on, on Nero's Circus, which was where uh, most of the early Christians, the first Christians, really lost their lives in Nero's persecutions. You may know that, that he, he crucified them up and down the, the, the boundaries of, of, of that circus and, and, and covered them in tar and set them on fire. Our brothers and sisters suffered dreadfully in those days. And of course, currently, things are hard for our brothers and sisters in North Korea and Saudi Arabia, many other places, because of the state. And part of what this chapter in Revelation tells us is that God has said this may well be for many believers how it will be. We're looking at chapter 13 tonight of Revelation. It's in the center of this little section in the middle of Revelation from 12 to, to 14, which we, we see gives us, we've said, gives us this sort of behind the scenes viewpoint of what's happening in our world and really tells us how things are between the two comings of Christ, as it were, between Christ coming into our world and Christ uh, returning and, and wrapping all things up. All of Revelation uh, encourages us to see what's really going on behind the scenes and to encourage us to keep going. And, and last Sunday night, we, we saw that chapter 12 tells us about a woman, a child, and a dragon, those three characters in that chapter. And in the symbolism of Revelation, the, the child stands for Jesus. The dragon stands for the evil one. The dragon seeks to destroy the evil one. And when he is not able to do that, he turns his attention to the woman who, who really stands for the church, God's people, and he vents his fury on the woman and her offspring. And that tells us and, and portrays for us the hostility that there is between Satan and the church, a hostility that, that spreads through all of history. 
and will continue to do so. He loathes Christ and loathes Christ's people. And, and so the big takeaway, as it were, from chapter 12 is that we must realize that we are, if we're Christians, we are in a battle. Now, the question, of course, then is, well, how does Satan do this? How does he vent his fury against the church? And, and what we find is that he, he acts through agents through means. He, he, he himself is, is really quite happy to uh, stay in the background and to be rather hidden. He's very happy if people don't particularly believe in him. I think it was C.S. Lewis who suggested that. Uh, happy if, if people don't really believe in him so long as they don't believe in Jesus. So he, he, he stays in the background and he operates through means. And we see the two agents here that he operates through in this chapter two beasts. They're described as two beasts. One emerges from the sea in the first 10 verses, and the other emerges from the land in the next uh, eight or nine verses. Uh, they, they work very closely together, as we'll see. Some people have suggested that this is a sort of anti-Trinity, a sort of a, 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 a false reflection of the Trinity. Uh, the devil is, in, in, in some ways, a sort of a perverse copycat. He, he, he copies God but turns the things that are beautiful in God and, and turns them to his own evil devices. These chapters, of course, even as we've seen, as we've read, contain some of the more fantastic imagery in Revelation and some of the more perplexing and intriguing issues. And, and we must remember that this book is, is given, first of all, to encourage Christians to stand. It's not just here to satisfy our curiosity or start us off in a great debate. But, but to encourage us to stand. That, that, that was the purpose of it in the first place. It was uh, written to these seven churches, and, and, and these seven churches were really under pressure in, in Nero's uh, rule. And, and, and it was as if John was saying to them, and God was saying to them through John, this is what's going on in our world now. Now you stand. You stand faithfully for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, so part of what we should take away every time we read this book is a desire to say, oh Lord, I, I know it's, it's tough. I, I know that some of the things that I'm facing and maybe going into are tough and, and what my brothers and sisters are facing across the world is incredibly tough, but I want to stand for, for you. Well, at the end of chapter 12, we read that the dragon was enraged at the woman, went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and holds to the testimony of Jesus. And then chapter 13 opens with those words that the dragon stands on the shore, the, sh the shore of the sea. And we, we get the sense that something's going to happen. And, and sure enough, it does. And a beast emerges from the sea. So this is the first part of what we're looking at tonight. And, and, and this beast really represents political power, political power, government in the, in the hands and animated by the evil one. You see, for the Jews, the sea was not a positive place. Katrina and I took uh, with some other folk, we took some of our, those Hungarian visitors that were with us this morning, we took them up to uh, the, the north coast, we did the coast road and all sorts of Karagorid and uh, fell out with the National Trust at, at, at uh, Giant's Causeway and, and because they wouldn't let us park our bus and all of these things. And, and then we eventually got to the beach at, at Port Stewart Strand. It's, it's so beautiful. It was so lovely there last night. And, and, uh, and the sea for, for us, 
uh, is, is a picture of calm and, and beauty. But for the Jews, they, they, they didn't really do that. They didn't do the sailing thing. They didn't uh, have a little boat that they went to at the weekend. Uh, they, they, the sea was somewhere that, that was terrifying for them. It was a picture of chaos and, and became uh, something that represented sin and evil, especially the sort of sin and evil of humanity. We need to remember, therefore, that in, in Revelation, in Revelation at the end, where it says there was no longer any sea, it's not necessarily talking about what the new creation will be like. It's saying that there'll not be any chaos, no sinful uh, chaos in, in God's final world. And so, uh, as uh, the beast stands at the sea, this, uh, or as the devil stands at the sea, this beast comes out of rebellious humanity, out of the chaos and evil of man in rebellion against God, this beast emerges. Well, we see that it has 10 horns, seven heads, 10 crowns on its horns, blasphemous names on its head. It speaks of power and authority. Very similar, of course, to how the dragon itself is described back in chapter 12 in the first uh, few verses. So here's this beast, this thing that emerges from the sinful humanity and it is animated by the spirit of the evil one, as it were. And John goes on. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Now, remember, we, we, we read uh, Daniel chapter 7. You, you could see the, the parallels and the echoes. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of four beasts. They represent four great kingdoms that would come from his time into the future. And, and scholars debate this, but it seems that they were probably the Chaldeans and then the Medes and the Persians and then Alexander the Great. And then the fourth beast was, was probably Rome, stronger than all the rest. And, and this beast in, in Revelation is really quite like the beast that represents Rome in Daniel, but it has, if you noticed, elements of all the other beasts as well, feet of a bear and all of these things. And, and so it, it's saying that, that this is not so much a, a, another kingdom or one of those kingdoms, but if you like, the power that lies behind all of those kingdoms, all of those kingdoms that have, have risen up and made things difficult for God's people, we, we find that behind these political powers and empires and governments, there is an evil agenda, a, a power ultimately animated by the evil one. Now, of course, we, we know that in some ways, government is a gift of God. Romans tells us that it's designed by God for good. But like so many of God's gifts, Satan is able to take it and turn it to his evil purposes. And so he's able to use it to oppress God's people. He's able to use it as one of the agents through which he vents his fury on the woman and her offspring. Now you notice there's something distinctive about this beast in verse three. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Now, some people think that this would have resonated with the early readers of this book because there would come a time when Nero, the emperor, would be rumored to have faked his own death. He was a really uh, a terrible man. 
And there was all sorts of rumors that he was going to come back again. And it might be that there is some sort of strange parallel with that fact. But it's more likely that this is saying that that evil, well, first of all, it's a, it's a, it's a, a little reflection, of course, of Jesus, isn't it? It's another counterfeit of Jesus. But, but it's, it's also saying that, that here is evil. It looks as if it's been defeated, but it's, it's back again. And, and we know that this is true, isn't it, of, of Satan generally. He's, he's defeated at the cross, and yet we know he's still active. He's been dealt a death blow, and yet he's full of fury because he knows his time is short. It's true of his evil plans, isn't it? Christians would have breathed a sigh of relief as Nero really died. But very soon he was replaced by another Roman emperor, Domitian. And if anything, the Domitian persecutions were even worse than those of Nero. Evil has a way of popping up again. So if we ever find in our day that we make some great stride forward, and that somehow the moral life of our nation improves dramatically over coming years, we should not rest on our laurels because evil will resurrect. The fatal wound will be healed and some other attack or front will open up. It's true in your life and my life as well. You make some advance in your Christian life. You take some step forward in your fight against sin, your determination to stand and to witness in your workplace or your school. And you think, great, I've got somewhere. And then evil rears its head again. And you find a new attack and and a new front opening on the interests of the evil one in your life. You see, there's always going to be a a back and forward between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil until Christ comes and wraps it all up. Some other things about this beast. There are so many little details here, but we can mention a few. It speaks proud and blasphemous words. That was certainly the case in John's day. The state demanded that you worship the Caesar, Caesar is Lord, they were demanded to say. And the fact that Christians couldn't do that was what led to many of them losing their lives. And so that description of all people worshiping the beast was very true in a very concrete way in in John's time. Everyone bowed to Caesar except for the believers. But there's a sense in which that's true, isn't it? As as people continue to, to bow and to trust in all human institutions that reject God. So, so this first picture then is, is sort of showing us that, that, that Satan comes at the church, comes at us, sometimes through governments, through authorities, through authorities that are animated by his power. For early Christians, Rome was that phenomenon. For other believers down through history, Islamic governments have fulfilled that role. In some places, it has been atheistic communist governments. For the confessing church in Germany, it was Hitler and the Nazi party. And together, those governments, that beast has resulted in the martyrdom of 
tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of Christians. And so in verse 10, there is a a realism, isn't it? Uh, Those who are going to go into captivity, let them go into captivity. Those who will die, then they're going to be put to death by the sword. It's going to be like that for some. What about the second beast? Well, there's a second beast that comes from the land. And and this one, if you like, to to put a little title under it or over it, it represents false ideologies, false religion especially. And uh, for those who came from a Jewish background, the land was much safer than the sea. And so this beast doesn't seem initially just so intimidating. It seems safer. And in fact, it looks safer initially as well because it looks rather like a lamb in verse 11. He has two horns like a lamb. Now, we've already seen that Jesus has been described as a lamb. So here is Satan at his counterfeiting again. And he looks benign until the beast speaks. And and what do we find? He speaks like a dragon. It speaks with the voice of Satan, later on described as the false prophet. So as I said, it, it, it represents false thinking, false religion in particular. So here is every way of thinking and understanding that leaves God out of the picture, that that portrays him wrongly. Here is every religious expression that doesn't lead to to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this very much runs against the the, the spirit of the age in which we live. Some of you are going to go into offices, and and if you were tomorrow, and if you were to ask around the office, they they, they would, and said, you know, what do you think of all the various religions in the world? Many people, many of your colleagues would say something, well, I guess they're all really trying to do the same thing, aren't they? they're all sort of responding to God some way or another, helping people to respond to the divine. It's a view that doesn't make any sense as as we look at it more closely, but it dominates our culture nonetheless. We should understand, however, that there is an evil power. Revelation and other places in the Bible tell us behind every false ideology and religion. In 1 Timothy 4 and 1 we read, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That'll go down like a lead balloon in your office tomorrow. In 1 Corinthians, there's a long discussion about the issue of participating in in pagan worship rituals where food is offered to idols. It was a big issue in Corinth. And and Paul, on on the one hand, says, well, we know an idol is nothing. But on the other hand, he, he, he says, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons, he says. Remember, Satan is not all that concerned about what you believe, so long as you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that verse 13 tells us this beast has power. It can perform signs causing fire to come down from heaven and to the earth in full view of men. So Elijah, remember, did that in Mount Carmel in order to demonstrate who was the true and living God. And here Satan is counterfeiting that as well. And we notice that there's great pressure to worship. We notice that there's economic penalty for those who do not. So much we could say here. Let me draw out just a couple of of maybe more practical things that we might want to reflect on. 
First of all, because Satan is a counterfeiter, and because the beast looks, this beast looks initially rather like Jesus, we ought not to be surprised if false religions and ideologies bear some of the marks that genuine Christianity does. So don't be surprised if people talk about peace or love or forgiveness even. Satan is a deceiver and a counterfeiter. Secondly, because this beast is given power, don't be surprised if false religion and false ideologies to some extent work. Don't be surprised if they have power. Remember when Moses was performing signs before Pharaoh? Some of Pharaoh's magicians could do some of the things, at least, that Moses did. I remember my, my last congregation was in a farming community. It was well known that if you had a sick cow, there were some healers that you could ring up. And they would do something over the phone and the cow would get better. Some people swore by it. They'd have said, I don't understand how it works, but it works. Just because something works doesn't make it right because the beast has power. You maybe know the story of the person who had had a long involvement in witchcraft and the occult and they came to Christ and they came to a Christian meeting and they they, they, they said, I, I really don't understand this. There's a, there's a power here. And I felt such a power before, but never like this because this power is a clean power. She'd felt power before, but never clean power. Just because there's power doesn't make something right. What, what about the, the mark of the beast? Uh, we'll say something about the number at the end. But first of all, th- this is not a literal, visible mark, any more than the Father's name that is written on the foreheads of believers in the next chapter is. You, you, you can just cast your eye into chapter 14. You'll see that the name of the Father is written on the forehead of believers. And you'll know that in most of our experience, as soon as you become a Christian, a tattoo does not automatically appear on your forehead. It'd be really interesting if it did, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it make witnessing easier? So, so forget all that speculation about barcodes on people's wrists and so on. I think this is saying that ultimately, you and I, we belong to someone. We have a stamp of ownership on us. And it's true for all of humanity. Either it is the stamp, the mark of the beast or the name of the father. We belong to the one whose ways we ultimately follow. And the other thing to say then here is that this is not just about false religions. It's not just Islam and Hinduism and so on. It's all sorts of ideas and ways of thinking that don't lead us to God. So it may be Marxism. It may be atheism. It may be materialism. It may be that incredible self-centeredism that is the soup in which we all live. You notice how these 
two beasts work together. And, and that's where great damage can be done. False ideologies and religions backed by state power. So, so for example, the ideology that individual freedom is ultimate that my private life and, and the decisions I make about my own body, those things no one can question. You take that ideology, you back it with state legislation, what do you have? Since 1967, you have 8 million abortions in the United Kingdom. Or, or think of what has been called the, the moral revolution that says, I, I can give expression to my lifestyle choices in any way that I wish, and, and those around me must affirm me. And perhaps we're just starting to see the power of the state coming in to underwrite that ideology. You might see your workplace going something like this. One year it will be a memo coming round to say, rainbow lanyards, well, they're available for staff to wear during Pride Week. Pick them up at reception. The next year it might be, uh, rainbow lanyards are encouraged by all staff during Pride Week. And then rainbow lanyards are compulsory for all staff who are dealing with the public. And then rainbow lanyards are compulsory. You notice that this chapter tells us about economic pressure being brought to bear on believers. We see that increasingly too, don't we? There are job opportunities that our children and our children's children just may not have because those particular areas of society will be such battlegrounds that Christians can't maintain a witness within them. It may well be that things like the, the gift aid that we get as a charity, as a church, will, will not be available unless we sign policies that, that no biblical church could ever sign. What's a Christian to do? Well, two things, and I think this is where we finish tonight. Two things. There's something to remember and, and, and then something to do. Something to remember, and this brings us oddly to the number of the beast. People have long speculated about this. This 666, does it refer to Nero or Hitler or Saddam Hussein or whoever it might have been? And I think this is actually saying something perhaps less mysterious, but, but really important for us to remember. In Revelation 7 is the perfect number. It often represents fullness or, or, or God. And so six is, is less than God. It is the number of man. It is, it is less than per, perfect, less than complete. And the three are ways of just emphasizing that. Remember, for example, holy, holy, holy. In, in biblical language, whenever something wants to be repeated three times, it, it's sort of underlining it. And, and so what this is saying, I, I think, is, is that with all human approaches, they're less than perfect. All that emerges out of the chaos of mankind, all that seeks to provide answers to man's need without God, 
well, it all falls short. It doesn't work. It's going to produce emptiness and frustration. Don't doubt that. You will go to work tomorrow or school tomorrow or into some social setting tomorrow beside friends and neighbors who are holding the Lord Jesus Christ at arm's length, and yet they are in and on a path of frustration and heartache. And maybe as you love them really, really well and hold out Christ them really faithfully, you will see that he is the perfect answer to their heart's cry. So remember, all that is not God doesn't last, it doesn't satisfy. But then there's something to do, and it's very simple, verse 10. John says, this this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. So this is the whole purpose of the book. Keep going. Here's what's going on in your world. Keep going. Here's what Satan is doing. Keep going. Here's the battle that you're in, the pressure that you're under. Keep going. Here is where it comes from. Here is why you feel like an alien and a stranger. Keep going. And that's where we're going to leave it tonight. Satan at work, venting his fury in the church. But you, Christian, keep going. Let's take a moment just to pause in in quietness and to think, what what is it that, that from this chapter, from this part of God's Word, God wants me to to take, to ask for help with as we push that down into our lives and into our daily practice? Help us, O Lord, each one to be conscious of the battle in which we are and help us to keep going. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.